Are there experiences in your life where you tend to think these are the places and the times when I expect God to show up? And are there experiences in your life where you're thinking these are the places and the times where I don't really think about God showing up? I have a feeling that most of us live with that sense of, of dichotomy about life. We have sacred moments, we have secular moments, and we don't really think about them crossing much. I've been thinking about that idea as I have been reading through and thinking about the last chapter of John's Gospel once again. It feels as if, if you read chapter 20, that John was done. He ends chapter 20 saying, and this is why I wrote this letter, so that you would believe Jesus is the Messiah, and believing in him, you'd have life in his name. And you can almost see the, the end on the end of that. And then it's as though he says, oh, wait, there's one more thing I want to say. I want to tell you this story of Jesus by the lake. And chapter 21 is not an addendum as if it's somewhat disconnected from the rest of the gospel. It is, it is important to understanding the gospel as a whole. It, it, is, it is essential to, to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus who is resurrected and is in the world. And over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to look at this from a variety of angles. But this morning, I want us to think about specifically this question of God in all of our lives. And, and I want to focus on kind of the mundane things of eating and working. Now, as this chapter unfolds, we find that the disciples are no longer in Jerusalem. They're in Galilee. They have been in Jerusalem for at least the first week or so after Jesus' resurrection. He appears to them there the night of of his resurrection and then a week later. And he says, um, go to Galilee and wait for me there and I'll come see you. And so they go to Galilee and they've been waiting. And we don't know how long, but you get a sense that they've been waiting for a while. So much so that Peter, who is kind of chomping at the bit for something to happen, says to the guys, I'm going fishing. I've waited long enough, I'm going fishing. And they look at each other, okay, we'll go with you. We'll all go fishing. And there are some people who interpret that as they've, they've sort of given up on Jesus. That they, they're done with him. They, they've moved on. Jesus is, you know, it was great to see him, but he's obviously not coming, so we're moving on. But I don't think that's the case at all. I think they're just anxious. They're probably a little bit bored trying to figure out how to spend their time. And they have, I mean, most of their adult life, they've been fishermen. So the natural thing for them to do when they're looking for something to do is to go fishing. And so they go out in the boat. They spend the night fishing. don't catch anything. Jesus says, he's on the shore. Try the other side of the boat. They do. Great haul of fish. They come in. Jesus fixes them breakfast. And they have a great time together. Now, what intrigues me about this story is as you get to the end of it, and, it's, and John says, Jesus, Jesus gave them the fish, and Jesus gave them the bread. It almost has a feel of being sacramental. 
You know, it almost has the feel that you've been transported back to, to that room in the, in the upper room on the night that Jesus was arrested and, and he institutes for the first time this holy meal of bread and cup. It almost has that feel to it. And it becomes a holy moment because of that. But I'm convinced that if that is the case, if, if that's what is John and Jesus are trying to communicate, I don't think that's all that's trying to communicate. I don't think this is a holy moment just because it might have some connection to that night. I think it's a holy moment because of the moment. And Jesus is in it as they eat fish and bread. Things that we do every day and they do every day. And in that everyday ordinary moment of working out fishing and eating on the shore, we see Jesus involved in their lives. Now there have been people through the ages who have, who have said... Had a, I guess they could have had a sense that eating is kind of a necessary evil for us. Now, I'm not one of those people who says that. Just clear that up right up front. I do not see eating as a necessary evil. Now, eating too much is a whole other thing. But, you know, I, I, I'm grateful for the chance to eat. And, I, and I, it's a great gift of God. But there have been people through the centuries who have said, if we could survive without eating, it would be better. Because eating is an urge, and the whole idea of being holy is to get rid of your urges. Now, I think that's a false understanding of being holy, but that was their perspective. And, the, and there were people who, who said, you know, we want to spend as little time as possible doing this ordinary, mundane thing so we can get to the really important stuff that's the spiritual things. And here we find Jesus sending us a completely different message. It's interesting to me that as Jesus, uh, when disciples and John says to us, they didn't dare ask who he was. They knew it was the Lord. John makes that statement right after Jesus says, hey, guys, come on in and have breakfast. Not after he heals someone or does something that they go, well, only Jesus could do that. It's also Interesting to me that when they come in to the shore, the first thing Jesus asks them is not, so guys, how have your devotions been going the last couple of weeks? His first question is, anybody hungry? Let's eat. And it's not a word about that being a metaphor for something. There's no parable. It's just these people are hungry and they need to eat. We think back to when Jesus fed the 5,000 in John 6. They're out there on the hillside and Jesus teaches them all day. And they get near the end of the day. And Jesus is realizing these people have been here a long time. They haven't had anything to eat. And he doesn't say, man, if these people were more spiritually sensitive, they wouldn't need to eat. Because I've got a lot more things to teach them. We've just gotten to page three of the workbook. We have a long way to go here. But you work with what you have, so we better give them to see about something to eat. No. He says, people are hungry. And he looks at the disciples and they say, don't look at us. That's not our job. We're here to feed their souls. Somebody else feeds their bodies. And Jesus says, hmm, that's not how it works. 
You guys feed them too. Feed their bodies as well as their souls. And that's the kingdom. God created us to be holistic people. And he cares about every part of our being. And and the, the needs that we have as human beings are not necessary evils. They're part of how God created us. And God is at work in things like eating and things like working. See, we tend to look for God in the spectacular. And that's how we tend to judge whether things are really spiritual or not. Did something spectacular happen? And we tend to ignore God in the ordinary, in the common, in the less than spectacular. That's what made me think of Second Kings chapter 5 in the story of Naaman. Naaman is the commander of the Syrian army. He has leprosy. He has a servant girl who's from Israel. And she says, I know a guy who can take care of that for you. So he goes down there. It's a, you know, it's a great story of the, of the king. And, uh, and, and he goes to Elisha's door eventually. He knocks on the door. And the servant says, answers the door. And he tells him what's going on. And the servant goes and tells Elisha. Elisha says, go tell him to wash in the Jordan River seven times and he'll be healed. And the guy doesn't say, wow, that was easy. Great, let's go. He's upset. He's irritated. That's it? That's all I get? I figured, I'd, first of all, at least see the prophet. I mean, that important. And then he would, he would, you know, lay his hands on me and, you know, make some motions and, and do something really fancy and exciting and say some cool words, and then I'd be healed. I can go to better rivers in Syria than the Jordan and wash. And he has some, you have to give a lot of credit to his servants I mean, they care a lot about him, and they have a lot of guts. And they say to him, um, sir, if he told you something crazy to do, you would do it. So why not do the simple thing that he said? Good point. And he goes, he washes, and he's healed. Naaman thinks God can only show up in something spectacular is taking place. And the truth of the matter is, God is at work in every moment of our lives. Those places and times and circumstances that we call spiritual and exciting, and the moments that we call ordinary and mundane and routine. The kinds of lives that most of us live. Because most of our days are probably better defined by routine than exciting. And God is in those moments. God wants us to understand that maybe it's in those routine moments that he might be able to do more in our hearts than in the spectacular moments. I read recently an article in Christianity Today by Bradley Nasif. I think the title of it was called The Monotony of Work. And he talks about, uh, takes us back to the desert fathers and mothers of the 4th and 5th century and talks a lot about their view of work. And he says they tended to see work as heavenly sandpaper. That doing work kind of rubbed the rough edges off of us. It, It humbled us. Doing work helped us to understand the creative nature of God. 
doing work helped them to, to see God in, in the work that they were doing, however routine or ordinary it might be. And, and they talked about the fact that it wasn't important just to till the soil, but what tilling the soil was doing in our own hearts. See, we tend to, to run away from the mundane things thinking so we can have time for God. Their mindset was God is in the mundane things. God is in the routine. And he tells a story about uh, one of the fathers named John the Dwarf who decided one day that he was in his younger years and he decided he, he wanted to be free of all of the, the stuff of the, of the earth. And so he went to his elder brother and he said, I want to be free from this stuff and I, I want to be like the angels who don't do any work. They just unceasingly praise God. And so he took off his cloak and he went into the desert. And a week later, he came back and he knocked on the door and his elder brother answered the door and looked at him and he said, who are you? He said, it's me, your brother, John. His brother said, it can't be. My brother's an angel. He's no longer on earth anymore. He said, no, it's really me. And he shut the door and he left him outside all night. And the next morning, he opened the door and he said, now you realize that in order to be a follower of Jesus, you work. You do mundane things. You live ordinary life. And God's in that. And John fell to his feet and begged his forgiveness. There's something in that that I, resonates with me about how I view what I do and how I do it. The fathers, the ancient fathers talked about work being one of the primary ways in which God develops Christ-likeness in us. And they said that our highest vocation is not the kind of work we do. It's the kind of people we become while we're doing it. I think part of our problem is that we... We have a skewed view of God and the kingdom. See, for us, work is a means to an end. We're all about getting to the end. And the, the fastest, quickest, easiest way to the end is how we live our lives. We're all about shortcuts. But God keeps telling us that the kingdom is not about shortcuts. In fact, there are no shortcuts in the kingdom. There is just the process, the journey of living day by day, moment by moment with Christ. And if we do that, then we get to the end God wants for us. But the irony is, if we're all we're looking at is the end, we never get to the right end. Because all we're thinking about is the shortcut, the easy way, the simple way, instead of the process. And the process is so vital because it's in the process that God does the work in us that he needs to do. That process that takes time of rubbing off the rough edges and changing our attitudes and our hearts that simply don't happen overnight. You think about Jesus, again, going back to him feeding the 5,000. He doesn't just pull fish and bread out of a hat. This little boy brings him his lunch and he, and he does something with that. 
Jesus says, so what do you guys got? What, what do we have to work with here? But somebody has to catch and process that fish. And someone has to plant and harvest the wheat and grind it into flour. And someone has to add salt and sugar and water and yeast. And someone has to bake it. And someone has to give it to this little boy so that he can give it to Jesus. And in my mind, I'm thinking, that's a lot of wasted time. Why can't we just go from seed to bread and eliminate all that middle stuff? That'd be a lot more productive. We'd feed a lot more people. We'd get a lot more things done. Wouldn't that be better? But God doesn't seem to agree with me. Jesus tempted in the wilderness. 40 days he's been fasting. He is desperately hungry. Why not turn rocks into bread? What's the big deal? I think the big deal is because Jesus knows God doesn't work like that. There is still the, 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 the sense of trusting God to supply his need without taking a shortcut. And every temptation that Jesus encounters in the wilderness is to take a shortcut. And every temptation that comes to us is to take a shortcut. To live our lives thinking it's about just how fast we can get to the end. Not the work and the ordinary mundane way of life that gets us there. When I read the scriptures, one of the things I find about Jesus, and I think you see this about of God in the Old Testament as well, is that God is never in a hurry. And it drives people crazy. I don't know about you, but it drives me crazy sometimes. In fact, if you said anything, you might say there are times where God showed up late. But his timing is always perfect. And he never hurries. So why do we? Why are we always in a hurry? Why are we always stressed? See, I, I'm convinced if we could live our lives seeing God in the ordinary, seeing God in the mundane, it would eliminate a whole lot of stress and worry and anxiety about what we're not doing for the kingdom, about what we're not, what we're not getting accomplished. And again, it doesn't mean that we're being lazy. Scripture is clear. We work. It's a part of what it means to be a human being and a part of what it means to be the kingdom, in the kingdom. And I think that will be our eternal existence. I think we will work all through eternity. It'll just be different because it won't, it won't drive us. Our work won't, um, it won't rule over us like it does now. See, now we've become workaholics because either we want more stuff and you have to work to get money, or we want recognition. And in both cases, if you boil them down, it's something here means more to me than Jesus. And something here can fulfill me in a way that Jesus can't. And so we work ourselves to the bone. And somehow we live in the tension between not letting work control us, but not being lazy or apathetic about the state of the world either. 
Because when this story is done, Jesus has a commission for Peter and the disciples. They aren't just going to lie around on the beach all the rest of their lives. He's got work for them to do. But in the right time, in the right way, in his processes. I think Jesus wants us to understand that he, that he is with us and he's at work in every moment of life. Those times that we think are exciting and, and supernatural and extraordinary and the times that quite frankly we consider kind of ordinary and mundane and boring and monotonous. In every moment, he's with us. You know, in the last few couple of decades, parts of the church have, have gone to calling the season of Pentecost ordinary time. And uh, so instead of being in the season of Pentecost, talk about being in ordinary time. And, and I kind of like and dislike that change. I dislike it because it sends the impression that this is ordinary time, but these are, these are the times you really want to be in. You know, you want to embrace Advent and Lent. Now, those, there are some times there. This is just ordinary time. And, and I don't think that's at all what it means, but it can communicate that. But I like it because, quite frankly, it reminds us that in ordinary life, and Pentecost is, uh, is almost half of the year, that in Pentecost, in ordinary time, Christ is present. And even if it's not something like Christmas Day or Easter Day or Epiphany or any of the other parts of the seasons of the year, Christ is just as present and he is just as much at work in what we call ordinary time as the other time. And I want to learn that lesson. I want to be able to see Christ in my every day when I'm preparing sermons and when I'm filing. When I'm standing up here in front of you and when I'm turning in a report to my district superintendent. When I'm cleaning up my office after the whirlwind of the weekend. And whether your work is inside the home or outside the home, Christ is present and he wants us to know that he's present. So whether you're mowing the grass or weeding the garden or preparing a meal or changing a diaper or sitting in a committee meeting or rewiring something in the wall or building something or milking cows or preparing a lecture, whatever it is we're doing, Christ is present. And I sometimes wonder if it isn't in those ordinary moments that we might actually find more spiritual growth than some of the other moments because it's a lot more difficult to trust when nothing is happening. It's a lot more difficult to believe Jesus is present when it feels like we don't really need him. And it's a lot more important to trust all the time 
But maybe the challenge to trust is even more difficult when it kind of seems like we have no reason to need to trust. Eugene Peterson talks about work as a container for grace. That when we engage ourselves in everyday, normal life of work, of just living, we are modeling Jesus. And when we, when we follow Jesus, then the spirit of Jesus comes out of us. We become agents of grace and justice and mercy and compassion and love. Isn't it what Paul writes to the Colossians? Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, Whatever you do, whatever you do. I think it was Oswald Chambers who said something like this. There is no such thing as secular life or sacred life. There's just life. And Jesus lived life. My question for you and me is, do we? Are we so in tune to Jesus that we just live life and we see him in every moment? When we expect him, when we don't. Heavenly Father, thank you. For wanting to be involved in every moment of our lives. We thank you that because Christ is risen, there are no more boundaries on what he can do and where he can go, how we can use our lives. Freedom. We pray, Father, that you will give to us eyes to see you every moment. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen.